Not allowed to tell you. It's possible it's due to the instability of all that moving. You were talking through the walkie, right? With who? It was you. Sometimes they want me to draw things. Is it true that Papa hates me? What's happening to him, Danny? Mama, you need to come help me. Eric! That man wants to hurt me. to hear a recording. It's a threat. Evil exists and lies in wait. If my boy really needs help, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. They're right here. They're trying to tell us something. She's here! Sarah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I am Mike 130, your hosting team. Tonight, with me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing? Uh, greetings and salutations, underground witches from Spain. Yes, I am doing very good, Mike. How are you doing? <laughs> I was actually thinking, because I actually wrote that in my notes while watching this movie, so I think now me and Don are going to go ahead and start a side cast to Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, called underground witches from spain <laughs> i'm down there you go i don't know how many underground witch from spain movies we'll be able to find so it might be a short series but i'm down <laughs> you'll just do a new episode every time one comes out there you go. <laughs> all right also joining us it's dawn how you doing dawn hey what's going on folks yeah great to be here as always all right well as we wind down 2020 this is probably one of three more episodes of fresh cuts uh as we will probably be taking the final week off to kind of compile final things for 2020 get some final watches done take that time and do our top 10 list early in january so i'll probably remind listeners out of like for the next two episodes just in case but tonight we are going to be talking about a movie that uh i kept thinking was on shutter so when i went to like rewatch it i was like <laughs> where the hell did it go because it's actually on netflix it is called don't listen or at least that is the american title um for the netflix release synopsis Daniel and Sarah have a nine-year-old son eric and they've just moved to a new home not knowing the neighbors to call it the house of the voices eric is the first one to notice the odd noises behind each door venom uh you can pronounce uh the original oh. title which is what uh it is voces v-o-c-e-s pronounced like i said voces uh that is the literal spanish translation to voices which i actually much prefer that title um i'm okay with don't listen but i have some minor issues with it once you're done watching the movie but uh, we'll get into that after the spoiler section. 
All right. Well, speaking of that, before we get into the spoiler section, we're going to do our general thoughts for this one. So I'll go right back to you, Venom. What did you think of Don't Listen? I I am just in complete awe that we are on this little bit of a stretch in, at the end of 2020 where I actually love almost every movie we've done. Over the last couple of weeks, we've done The Dark and the Wicked, and of course, last week, Possessor. And here we are again with Don't Listen, and I fucking love this movie. This this is easily a top ten for me for this year. Um, I feel like this movie is flawless. I have I literally, after my second watch, I sat down and I tried to think about things that I could nitpick about this, and I literally cannot. There's not one line of dialogue that's misplaced or mispronounced or uh, misspoken, if you will. Um, and obviously it's Spanish, so obviously line readings are going to be, you know, uh, you kind of have to take uh, take it with a grain of salt if you're not familiar with the language. But between the performances, the direction, the cinematography is stellar in this film. They take a little, this little unassuming house, and um, it is an older looking house. It's not quite like a Victorian mansion by any stretch, but it's an older house. It has a 300 plus year history. And the way that they use the camera work, the way that they use all those um, aerial, I assume, drone shots, uh, just it makes the house seem so um, there, there's like a feeling of entrapment by looking at this house. Like if you were to visit this house, it, there's enough wide open spaces around it. And and the house is brightly lit enough that it really doesn't come off as menacing in any way. But the way that they utilize the cinematography in this film just gives the house a certain menace. Um, the score, the score is so beautiful. It, it's it's somber and unassuming, so it's never really in your face. But during the scenes, there's a couple of montage scenes in the movie, and the score is just so perfectly fit into those scenes that I, I just absolutely love it. Um, the story is nothing original. Again, we, you know, we're looking at a basic haunted house story where it turns out the house has a very nefarious past that is, you know, kind of coming back to haunt anyone who dwells within it. So it's definitely not the most original story. Um, I, as I'm watching it, I'm seeing elements of uh, this year's Toys of Terror for anybody who saw that. The setup for the story is the same, obviously not the execution. Um, because I was not a big fan of Toys of Terror. Um, there's also elements of Twin Peaks in here. Anybody who watched the original two seasons of Twin Peaks, um, you may not have caught it at the end, but I will explain it to you at the end. I saw it right away, and I will fully admit Twin Peaks is one of my favorite shows ever. I am constantly re-watching it, so it's going to be a lot easier for me to see elements of it in here. I was very happy with the with the ending, Um you know, a fairly satisfying ending, not a jump scare ending like The Dark and the Wicked, which, you know, kind of ends up bringing my total rating for that movie down just a tad, just like half a point, maybe. But this movie, like I said, I can't think of anything that I found wrong with it. I, it's not I, it's so hard to flat out say it's the perfect film because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of horror fans who watch this and have issues with it. Hell, there might be people on this show today who end up having issues with it. But for, for my, um, for my general thoughts, this is almost a perfect film. I loved every second of it. I watched it twice. Uh, the first day I watched it, 
I just I loved it that much. So yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Damn near perfect. All right, Don, is this a damn near perfect for you as well? Not even fucking close. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, were we watching the same movie? Because I found that this was practically every single ghost haunted house film in the last 20 years. Hey, like uh, I said, this is, yeah, I yeah it's one of the most generic, overdrawn, and completely bland ghost story I've watched this year. <laughs> uh, I found it just incredibly generic. Um, it was just like everything I've seen. It, it just felt like so completely redone. Uh, the first thing that came to mind was um, I had it this afternoon. Fuck, what was um, uh, it? Was oh 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 um yeah it was white noise meets darkness meets the closet. Eh, I can't argue with that. Yeah, and to me, I. I will completely agree. I do like a lot of, I, I do like the presentation of it. I, it is very slick. It's very, it's, you know, very professional and competent looking. It has absolutely everything that it should, it, it, it should be better than what it is, but, but I just found everything in here just so generic. Everything just, it felt so expected, like, okay, yeah, we're going to have this. Okay. Yeah. We're going to have that. And nothing was really much of a sh- was much of a shock. All of the scares are completely telegraphed and expected. I can't say that it was. I can't say that it was really a bad time because I I actually found myself watching it just not taking notes and actually having to scramble to re- rewrite my review. So I do want to say that there that should count for something because I wasn't annoyed to the fact of actually wanting to turn it off or just. Being like, oh god, we have to watch Drek like this. Like, I actually was a, I was actually focused on it to the point where I actually forgot to take notes for a significant portion of the film, and had to pause it to get to like rewrite my rewrite the notes for the show to get myself back into where I was. Because normally I take notes as the movie goes on, so when something happens, I'm usually the way I work it is is that it's right there where the movie's over, I'm done writing up my notes, I'm done writing up my review. So, I do want to say the fact that I actually was engaged enough with the film to stay into it and actually not look away to type was something of an accomplishment, but in the end of the day, I I just felt that this was just every generic ghost story and haunted house film that we've seen before. It's certainly, like you said, it's certainly not original, but I don't much more to say other than it was just an average ghost story. I mean, this thing absolutely pales in comparison to even 32 Malasagna Street. I prefer that one so much more over this. So, hmm. uh, Both movies are on a par for me. I absolutely love both of them. I said both of them shot up into my top 10, and obviously I won't finalize my top 10 until the last couple of weeks of the year, but I mean, when a movie doesn't frustrate me in any way, shape, or form, and you guys know the way I am with character choices, uh, where, you know, I constantly get frustrated with, you know, characters making ridiculous choices in the movie. To me, that could have been the issue that kept me engaged, because like you, I really couldn't find 
find fault with what they were doing. It's just everything they were doing, I, I just feel like I'd seen it before. Oh, so absolutely. It just felt like yeah. It, yeah, so mm-hmm. to me, it's just a by-the-numbers film. And that's, I mean, okay, yeah, that you know maybe that can work, but it could have been a case of it being hyped up because I know that the few that have seen it before us have been raving about it. So maybe subconsciously I was expecting it to be like just this completely off the rails, you know, all out ghost movie. And what I got was just every ghost was every other haunted house film I've seen before. Or, I mean, a lot of the recreations in this, I've seen a lot of the, I mean, you know, the insidious films use all of the, we'll, we'll talk about later. The insidious films in closet are just near shot for shot remakes of scenes in here. So, I mean, it's not that I was really distracted to the point of being frustrated with it. It's just I found myself at the end of it being, okay, that was a film. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure how to rebut that, honestly. Um, I've said it before on this show, and I'll say it many, many more times. I, I, I like originality, but I would prefer a, a, a filmmaker make something that's color by numbers and actually do it right than try to do something original and fail miserably. And yes, I, I, I said it. This movie is not original. There is nothing original about this story. It's a ghost story that we've seen plenty of times before. Um, we've even seen, like I said, we've seen elements in films over the last year or two that are utilized in this. But ultimately, I was so engaged with this family right from the start, from the very opening scene with the kid talking to his um, psychologist. I was just riveted. I was. Oh, same I, with I, me. I mean, I mean, like mm-hmm. I said, I pointed that out in my thing. I was so engrossed in this, I wasn't looking away and typing notes up. Mm-hmm. So I actually had to pause it to re- to catch myself back up on what I had missed. So yeah, I do think that there is validity to what you're saying, and I'm not going to deny it that mm-hmm. it's just okay you know what i found was just every ghost movie i've seen and every haunted house movie that's come before it so you're right i mean and i'm not going to argue with that either you're yeah. right but that doesn't make a movie bad to me or not, i don't i don't i'm not saying it's bad it's just i you know i just found it as a you know as a bad you know paint by numbers film so which, you know, like I said, I'm not going to argue with that. It's very valid. As far as its storytelling goes, it's very color by numbers. It's it's every ghost story that we've seen in the last 50 years, and that's fine. Like I said, for me, as long as you give me characters that I can sympathize with, characters that I can get behind. I mean, I literally hated no one in this movie. I, I can't remember the last time that I could say I loved every single character in this movie, good or bad, even the antagonist. I liked what she did. I liked the things that, uh, the set pieces that they utilized, which, again, we're going to say it multiple times in this episode. They are not original set pieces. We've seen it before. But ultimately, they were effective to me. And I'm I'm actually going to disagree with you vehemently about the jump scares in this movie. I think that there's one or two jump scares that there's just no way anybody saw coming. No fucking way anybody saw these coming. And then there's other jump scares that are incredibly obvious. Like, you know the jump scares coming. But the filmmaker plays with the timing a little bit. There's one jump scare specifically in the movie involving uh, headphones and a parabolic microphone. Well, when, uh, when our EVP expert starts his investigation of the house... And 
we we every single person who has ever watched this movie knows that a jump scare is coming but the filmmakers delay it just enough that it's like when the hell's it coming when the hell's it coming and then bam there it is and it's like even though you're expecting it it was still effective and that particular jump scare mm -hmm. for me literally got a spit take from me because i took a sip of water because i was sick of waiting for the scare to come i'm like all right fuck it i'm just gonna okay take a yeah sip. see okay so that's personal preference because i hate stuff when they do that delay uh -huh. expect okay so yeah that no that's just personal preference because i Absolutely. hate mm -hmm. okay so uh, i'll concede on that one that one's personal preference because for me even though it's expected delaying it i i still have issues with it ah uh, see that uh yeah i mean it worked for me like okay, i said so i would have had more problems with the movie if they came at the exact moment that we expected them i'd have been like all right well there's that expected jump scare and then there's that expected jump scare and i fully agree with you there are a lot of jump scares most of them actually in this film that are telegraphed but like i said a couple of them come earlier than you expect and a couple of them come later than you expect. And I appreciate that. That shows a filmmaker who's not trying to make a color by numbers movie. He's trying to do something a little bit different because he knows it's not the most original story ever written. It's not the greatest story ever told by any stretch. So he's trying to play with his filmmaking, be it his cinematography, his audio, his sound design, um, you know, different timing on the jump scares. And, you know, like I said, the ultimate greatest jump scare in this movie. There's no way another human being on the planet could ever have predicted that it was coming because it literally comes mid sentence, but obviously we'll get to that in a little bit, but yeah. Um, <laughs> what's funny is the second to last line of my notes is Don is going to hate this. <laughs> I'm so glad I was right. <laughs> um, and, and well, you I, admit that you I'm don't not hate hating. No, I, I'm not hating on it. It's just, I, you know, I'm not as high on it as you. Absolutely, and that's fine. That, that's to be expected. I can't imagine anybody is going to be as high on this movie as I am. And I will fully admit that I am biased for Spanish horror films. I am a Spaniard, and when I see them and when they're done so effectively, like a Terrified or you know something along those lines, I'm completely blown away by it. Whereas Terrified gave us definitely something way original that we had never seen before, um, or at least aspects of it. I fully admit, I will, I will agree with any person who says that this film is derivative, it's, you know, it's color by numbers. I will never argue that point because the movie absolutely is. But for whatever it's worth, every second of this movie worked for me. I was never bored. I was never frustrated. I was never angry at any of the characters or any of the situations. I'm like, well, everybody did exactly what they could do. Um, you know, I mean, nobody nobody did anything stupid, be it the experts who come in in the second half of the movie or the family who's there throughout the entire thing. I just like I said, and I, I literally, guys, I, I, I can't stress enough. I sat after watching the movie the second time in a row. I sat on my couch with nothing playing in the room. And I'm sitting here with a notepad trying to think of something that I disliked about the movie and I can't think of one thing. And then when I watched it today for the third time, uh, I, I again, I was very meticulous looking at every single shot, every single bit of sound design, every single set piece. And yeah, for whatever it's worth, I can't find anything wrong. So yeah, ultimately, I know everybody's probably going to come in lower than me on this one, be it on this show or out in the world. But man, I absolutely love this film and i can almost guarantee it's going to be in my top 10 when we do our show uh later in january so mike 
Tell me yeah. the <laughs> um, I am actually not going to tell you you're wrong. I like this movie a lot. Funny enough, I can't really argue with Don's. Uh, what Don's saying is mostly true, I would say, but I've always kind of erred on the same side as you, Venom, where if you can give me something original and good, the you know that's probably the the cream of the crop but when i just get something good i don't mind that i've seen it before i don't mind tropes it really doesn't bother me i mean i think it's just like any genre you like what you like i mean look at slasher films you know how many of those are carbon copies of each other but if they do it well they do it well i thought this movie was highly effective i liked the characters um I like that they did a little. I thought they did a little something different than what we usually get with the folks that come help, and we can get into that more in spoilers. Because I thought, I thought they were going to be a little bit more tropey, yeah. but I I felt there was a little bit different. Um, uh, they were different characters than what I was expecting, which is good. Um, I uh, you know I I, I liked how much the i guess the demon or the devil or whatever was kind of messing with everyone constantly in this movie it's like once once it started happening it was like you know every scene messing with every character uh i like how it wasn't like you know it wasn't specifically like a curse on this family but just like more the house itself like anyone that comes into contact um I liked the score. I thought the score was effective. I liked the design of, you know, the devil or the basically any forms it was taking throughout the movie. I liked the design on it. Mm. Um, you know, some jump scares were telegraphed, but, but there were a few that got me. And uh, by the end of it, I I was satisfied with the ending. And uh, did you guys did you guys stick around? Did you see the Post credit scene. Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. I got it in my notes too. Yep. Yeah. All right. We'll get into that later. As far as I just want to make sure you guys had actually seen it. Mm-hmm. I. What's funny is I. I didn't see it the first time I watched it. I must have like. I. I usually don't ever stop movies during the credits, so maybe I just got up to do something during the credits, and by the time I came back, the credits were over. But on the rewatch, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was also surprised with that because you don't see a lot of direct to VOD horror films do a post-credit scene you know that's usually reserved for theatrical releases but uh, yeah, it was really uh, nice to see that and they must when there's a post-credit scene they must have something in the coding to like let it go because i i'm sh- pretty sure like sometimes when you watch shows or movies on like netflix and stuff you know it'll start to count down to the next thing and sometimes yeah. it happens before the credits are even over Mm-hmm. So there must be something like if there is a post credit scene, they make sure to yeah. put it in there not to do it. Yeah, um, I, I, mean, I have I have auto uh, autoplay turned off on my Netflix settings on everything. Uh, actually, yeah. YouTube, I hate autoplay because um, for the exact reason. Sometimes I'll watch a movie and I just kind of want to sit and digest what I just watched without you know a, an episode of The Office coming on or whatever you know. So uh, yeah, so I always have that stuff turned off. Cool, um, but yeah, it, it's. It's kind of one of those positions where, like, I agree with most of everything what Venom said, and at the same time, I can't really disagree with what Don said. So if that kind of stuff makes you think lesser of a movie, then I would expect you to like it less than me and Venom did. So, 
you know, I think maybe it'll split people in that way. I've heard mostly positive, but I haven't heard a ton of people talk about it. It's mostly been, you know, people more in our direct circle of podcast buddies yep. that ever talk about. It. So, um, but overall, yeah, I I thought it was really just well done and effective, and I like the story. Yeah, and, I mean. Uh, I loved how absolutely brutal the entity in this thing is. I mean, it it takes no prisoners. Literally, no one is safe in this house, and they prove it to you quite early in the film. So I just, I, I loved how it was almost like a Game of Thrones feel, you know, where where you're you're almost scared to start liking a character and getting behind them because it's like, oh shit, now they're gonna die. You know, and obviously with a film, you don't get the the Game of Thrones effect as much with a series because obviously that's an ongoing thing, blah blah blah. But I mean, when that, well, not the first one, but when the second death occurs in the movie, I'm I I was floored. I was absolutely floored. I'm like, holy shit! Spanish horror filmmakers are doing what Americans don't have the balls to do. And obviously, we'll get into that in the spoiler section. But yeah, holy shit, was that death just shocking? In the sense of its storytelling, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me see. I'm trying to check out my notes and see if there's anything I can talk about that's not spoiler-related, but there's not really. Like I said, we've talked about the predictable jump scares, even though, for me, they were still mostly effective. Um I mean, there were some there were some decisions made in the movie that I was actually behind. I'm like that I didn't think of that I was like, oh wow, I wouldn't have thought of doing that. But there it is. They, they you know they they took the initiative and did what needed to do, uh, what needed to be done. Excuse me. So uh, yeah, I like I said, I, I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna pretty much fillet this movie for a couple of hours, uh, unapologetically. By the way, because <laughs> I just absolutely. I, I I love this movie beyond anything I can put in the words, and I will die on that hill. This movie is top ten for 2020, and I've already seen a couple of podcast um, podcasters who have released their top ten or 2025 for the year, and pretty much all of them have this movie, if not in the top five, at the very least in the top ten. I saw one podcaster today who has it as his number three film. I'm not sure if I'm that high on it. Like I said, I still have rewatches to do, but. I can almost guarantee this is going to be top 10, especially because it's late in the year and it's going to be fresh in my head and I'm still just gleaming about it right now. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I think where Don's, um, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say criticism, but his thoughts on it, that's where it becomes more tricky about where I would place my list because once we get to, like, our actual top movies – that is where I would err on the side of like, okay, let me look for all the uh, movies that I liked that I felt were like more original and stuff, and they might get nods over it if it's close. Mm-hmm. But as far as just you know isolating this movie out for its own discussion, that kind of stuff doesn't affect me as much. I hear you. Okay, so the, there is one thing I do want to mention this right here right now before we get any further mm-hmm. to just be, i know we don't rate rate on this show and i know that that's the the thing with this but if this makes anybody feel any better my score on this when i submit it to imdb is a seven it's not like i totally hate this thing i just find mm-hmm. it really repetitive yeah yeah i mean i i'm, I'm so definitely I want, not and, and yeah that. yeah and I, I i'm just saying is that i you know before this gets out there that i hate the movie and that i think it's still because i did nothing but just trash it for its unoriginality i still give this a seven like to me this is still you know an incredibly watchable and enjoyable film like i 
said, I spent more time engrossed watching it than actually note-taking to prepare for the show. Mm -hmm. So that says something about, you know, the immersion that this film creates. It's not that I hate it. I just found that it was an incredibly well-made recreation of everything I've seen before. So it's not like I'm actually sitting here and saying this is unwatchable junk. And I, I know that that's not what you guys are saying, but I don't want that impression in the slightest. So that's what I'm trying to get out in front of you by saying is that I'm still very, very high on the film. It's just I'm not going to be sitting there sucking its cock off like you nope. guys are. I totally understand that, yeah. And, okay. I, de- and I definitely don't want to make cock. it sound like I think you hate it because I, I understand <laughs> and, what you're and, saying. And that's like, exactly- we've, already, we've already established that you know some people are looking for more originality. Some people are okay with color by numbers if it's done well. So th- th- nobody's right or wrong here, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, and, it's just I mean like I said, it's, I'm still giving this an incredibly above-average score, but I'm not... I'm going to call it a top 10 at year. So like I'm saying, I just wanted to get out in front of that and just, you know, put that out there and put that to the rest that, you know, I'm not hating on the film. It's just I found more negatives than you did when you said it was nearly flawless. That's all I'm saying. No worries there, brother. Yeah. And I'm not accusing anybody on the show of anything. Thing. I'm just putting it out there for the listeners. Just oh, no, no. No, not at all. I, that's, I definitely... Yeah, that's I hear you. I, I, I'm not trying to put my, uh, words in anybody's mouth. Obviously, um, you know, you had more issues with it than positives, and that's fine. That's not a problem. Like I said, this is all subjective. I have never taken offense to anyone's review. Uh, the only time I might take offense is if somebody calls Black Christmas the best movie of 2019. Then then we have problems. Uh, th- them's fighting words right there. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I'll... Uh-huh. I was going to say, oi. <laughs> All right. So, um, Mike, Don, if, if nobody has anything else to add that's spoiler-free, I guess we can walk into our walkthrough. Did I just say that? That sounded stupid. <laughs> um, I was going to bring that up just before you corrected yourself. So, <laughs> nice way to hang the lampshade on that. <laughs> there you go. Um, All right. So yeah, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. All right. So, Voces, or as it's known in America, don't listen. Our movie opens up with a beautiful aerial shot, probably, like I said, one of those drone shots where the camera is directly above its subject. And what we're looking down at, at first, looks like a pond uh, because the camera's so high up, it just looks like a, uh, a natural body of water. As the camera gets closer, we see cobblestone work and then we see a fence around it, realizing that it is actually a pool. Hard to tell that it's a pool because the water is so dirty and there's so much debris inside of it, sticks, leaves, everything else. That's kind of why I thought it looked like a pond at first. But um, as the camera approaches, uh, we see a man, a mysterious man, walking towards the pool, grabbing one of those pool skimmers and pulling out a red ball from, uh, from within the pool. He, he then throws it off screen to Lord knows who at this point. And uh, we see the camera pans back farther and then we get our first shot of the house, which, like I said, doesn't look menacing in and of itself. But throughout the film, there are certain shots where the cinematographer just uses some beautiful angles, giving the house a sense of menace without, you know, without playing with the score or darkening the lighting or anything like that. So, again, kudos to the cinematography here. Um, after that, we see a, uh, we, uh, let's see, we see a child psychologist who is speaking to Eric. He is the child of the family. Uh, it is a family of three. We have dad, Daniel, and mom, Sarah. 
Uh, but like I said, we're introduced to Eric in this scene, and he's being interviewed by a child psychologist because uh, it seems that Eric is having trouble with the move. Uh, the family just moved into the house, and you know, children that age—I don't know—I'd say he's probably like eight to ten, maybe. I'm maybe a little older. I'm really bad at gauging children's ages in movies. Yeah, uh, I have I had him closer to around six or seven, but I'll do I'll buy eight to ten. Yeah. I, I see it. Um, let's see. So she's asking him questions about why he's upset with the move. And at one point in the conversation, she says, oh, you know, there, there's I've talked to so many kids like you over the years. And instantly his face lights up and he says, wait, there's other kids like me out there. Um, obviously not understanding the question. The psychologist says, yes, yeah, there definitely are. Um, and But then the subject of the voices is brought up, and Eric tells the psychologist that he hears voices in the house, and the psychologist asks, you know, do the voices ever ask you to do anything? And he just says, yeah, sometimes they ask me to draw things, draw certain pictures. Uh, remember that, because that's going to be an important plot point as we move forward. Um, and then the conversation between the psychologist and Eric just kind of ends. We see the the psychologist leave the house. As she's leaving the house, uh, she's speaking to Eric's parents. Uh, and then the camera goes back to Eric's room where he suddenly starts to hear a voice mumbling on a walkie-talkie that he has in his room. Um, as soon as, like I said, the voice is just gibberish. We can't tell what it is, but we can, you can definitely hear that there's whispering in the walkie talkie. At that point, Eric grabs a piece of paper and some crayons and starts drawing a picture. At that point, the psychologist is seen leaving the house in her car and she's driving down the road. Uh, the first uh, sign that there's something wrong is that the radio starts going out, cutting out on her, even though she's in wide open space. So there's no reason for uh, the radio signal to go away. And then a fly appears inside the car and actually kind of starts buzzing around her face, bothering her. At this point, the camera is going back and forth between Eric's room and the psychologist in the car. We see Eric start to draw like a tree, just just like a tree, a, a random tree branch, like nothing real menacing. Uh, but then what happens is the fly inside the psychologist's car, we see it go into her ear, actually goes inside of her ear. And at the moment that it goes inside of her ear, her eyes turn completely blood red. She loses the expression on her face, and we see her start to accelerate the car and grab the, the, the steering wheel at 10 and 2. Like, she knows exactly what she's doing. Um, and then the camera, like I said, is just going back and forth between Eric um, vigorously drawing this picture of the tree branch and uh, the psychologist speeding. Of course, the inevitable happens. She ends up speeding and crashing right into a tree. And then at the exact moment that she crashes into the tree, the camera goes back to Eric's bedroom and he has completed his drawing. He goes to put it up on the wall and the drawing is basically the same tree branch that we saw him drawing. But at the ends of the branches, there are drops of blood um, coming off of them. And that's the whole picture. It's just the tree branch with a little bit of blood on the end. And then the camera goes back to the car accident, and we see one of the most gnarly impalements that I remember seeing in recent history. Um, the psychologist is still alive, gurgling uh, her last breath, and what we see is the tree that she, that she drove into, there's one large branch that went right directly into the driver's side, through her face, and through the back of her seat. 
And like I said, she's still alive, you know, basically just gurgling, struggling. And eventually she just, you know, takes her last breath and dies. Uh, what did you guys think of this death? Like I said, I thought this was great. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, a nice showstopper, you know, at the beginning of the film. Um, I, I really didn't need that lingering on the front of it, though. I liked it more when it was just the side shot. Oh God! When I, I mean, I, 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 I like the I like the gur, I like the gurgle that sure. last second gurgle. But then I thought they just lingered on it, just maybe like a second too long. Oh, see, that's what I kind of dug into it is, is that they did linger on it. It's such an uncomfortable thing to look at. Yeah. I mean, I I could see people with maybe uh, weaker constitutions actually turning away and covering their eyes. It looked so goddamn realistic. Yeah. I just loved it, it, especially at the angle that it goes in, because you would expect it to actually pierce the front of her mouth. Exactly. Yep. And that's where I was expecting it to be. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do agree that just slightly off to the side is a much gnarlier look. Which seems uh, pretty realistic because you would think that as a person who's about to hit a tree, they would probably turn their head, you know, um, you know, not just drive right into it staring forward. So it kind of it totally makes sense for me. But yeah. yeah. What you, would you think of that one, Mike? Uh, it was excellent. <laughs> I what a way to start. I mean, and yeah, that's the cold open, folks. We haven't even mm-hmm. gotten the title card yet. So, like I said, they give you a little taste of what's to come, and it's just so gnarly and brutal that, like I said, that I mean, that's probably why most of us were so riveted from that point, you know, until they started to find issues with it. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the cold open. So, like I said, you know, um, after that, we get our title card um, for the American release, of course, Don't Listen. Um, so after that, we, uh, we, we finally meet, uh, Daniel, who is the father. He was the guy in the opening scene who pulled the red ball out of the pool. And it looks like he's, um, either some kind of contractor, you know, working on the house. But then as it's revealed, um, these people are house flippers. Uh, you know, they, they buy houses that need work, fix them up and then sell them for a profit. This was, this was kind of what I was saying about, uh, reminiscent of toys of terror. If anybody saw, uh, this year's toys of terror, that's pretty much the exact same setup. It's a family with, uh, you know, a mom and dad, a couple of kids, and they are house flippers by trade. And of course the kids don't like it because they constantly have to be moving, making new friends, going to new schools, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, minor similarity there so anyway like i said daniel we see daniel the dad working on the house um he sees that there's a hole in one of the walls and there's flies coming out of it um but rather than investigating he basically just takes a can of you know bug spray and just sprays it all over the hole in the hopes of taking care of the fly infestation back there um at that point eric is heard calling his father on a walkie-talkie uh, it seems like Eric always has a walkie-talkie with him, and then the other one is just somewhere in the house, either with Dad or just lying somewhere. Um, Eric basically asks his father, can you come and get my ball out of the pool again? It accidentally got in there. Uh, the reason that Eric is asking his father to get the ball is because, and it's established throughout the film, that Eric is actually afraid of the pool. It's not that he can't swim. Uh, later in the film, it's established that Daniel absolutely can swim. It's just that something about that pool gives him pause you know some kind of menacing feeling so he doesn't like going in there by himself even though the gate's not locked he could literally just open the gate walk in get the ball out of the pool with the skimmer and walk away but you know obviously something about it is terrifying him so he has his dad um you know get the ball for him at that point 
um, it's time for Eric to take a bath. While Eric is in the bath, um, they've got one of those little like shower radios in there. Um, and it turns on by itself. And once again, we start to hear the whispering. Uh, this time, the whispering, you can actually make out a few words. Um, and one of the things that the voice says is he hates you. Um, obviously, speaking about da uh, Daniel, his father, you know, uh, his feelings towards Eric. Uh, his mother comes into the shower uh, to help him finish up, finish up his shower, rinse his hair, whatever. And he actually questions his mother, does daddy hate me? And, of course, the mother is put off by the question, like, what? What are you talking about? Your father loves you. Who told you that? And then he actually says, daddy said it. So, apparently, the voice that he's hearing in, like, the walkie-talkie in the shower radio reminds him of his father. So he thinks it's actually his father telling him to, you know, draw these pictures and then, you know, like I said, telling him that he hates them, which is obviously false. I mean, this this family is very, you know, in love with each other. I mean, th there's nothing but love in this family for the first, like, 15, 20 minutes of the movie. So um, let's see. Um, it's, it's the next, it's that evening and Daniel is in bed watching a show about EVP. And of course that is electronic voice phenomena. Anybody who follows, you know, ghost adventure type shows, ghost investigation stuff, you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with EVP. Um, Dan and his wife end up falling asleep in front of the show and Dan wakes up in the middle of the night to hear the pool gate open. He can hear it swinging open. So of course, you know, since he does have a young son, he instantly gets up, goes outside, and closes the gate. As Dad is seen going out to the pool, Eric once again hears a voice on his walkie-talkie. Uh, again, it's just gibberish. We're not able to make out any specific words, but Eric is sitting there or lying there in his bed listening to this voice. We then see Dad come back to the house, and when Dad comes back to the house, he actually sees... Uh, the other walkie-talkie, the one that Eric's not using, and he can actually hear Eric speaking to someone. He can't hear the whispers, he can't hear any kind of replies, but he does hear Eric is speaking to someone on the walkie-talkie. Um, at that point, Eric, uh, Eric's robot toy, he's got one of those loud, flashing robot toys. Um, basically, it comes on by itself. Uh, he, you know, obviously, Eric is freaked out. He goes to grab it. He can't seem to figure out how to turn the, the power on it off. Um, he's looking all over. And finally, he does find a switch and uh, turns the robot off. At the moment that he turns the robot off... Um, he looks towards this plastic sheet um, that's blocking off part of his bedroom. Like I said, the house is being renovated. So there's multiple parts of the house that aren't really safe for habitation. And they basically just cut them off with a, you know, a, a random piece of sheet plastic that you, know, you would get at Home Depot or whatever. Uh, so like I said, after, he finally, after Eric finally gets the robot toy turned off, he looks towards the plastic sheet and he sees a pair of old dilapidated feet standing in front of him um the the plastic sheeting is basically covering the rest of it all he can see are like the the feet and the lower part of the legs from underneath the plastic sheet uh, we get you know the first of many very obvious jump scares there where something kind of lunges at eric but he jumps into his bed and as any kid would do when they're scared he goes under his blanket and you know kind of covers his ears so he can't hear the voice anymore blah 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 um, and then we get a very, uh, once again, we get a very obvious, uh, jump scare where, 
Uh, it looks like something is in a POV shot walking towards Eric's bed while he's under the blankets. But then when something reaches for him, it turns out to be his father. Um, you know, Eric freaks out a little bit because, you know, the, he doesn't realize that it's his dad right away. He thinks that something is attacking him, blah, blah, blah. Um, Eric's mom comes into the room and tries to, you know, calm Eric down, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the scene just kind of ends. It fades to black from there. Uh, the next morning, mom and Eric are seen coming home from school early. Dad asks, why, why are you guys home? And as it turns out, Eric got expelled. And the reason that he was expelled from school is because he was basically so terrified from the evening before that as soon as he got to school, he basically just hid in a closet and wouldn't come out for anyone. And then finally, when the principal opened up the closet to try to get him out, uh, Eric actually bit him, uh, bit him right on the arm. We don't actually see that. It's just described to us. But yeah, uh, Eric has basically been expelled from school. At this point, the mother threatens to call the child, the, the child psychologist to come back. She actually says, well, if you're not going to be in school, I'm going to have the child psychologist here every day until you start to behave like a normal kid. At that point, Eric just nonchalantly spits out, she's dead. And, and the, both of the parents are like, whoa, what are you talking about? How, who told you she was dead? And once again, Eric just says, the voices. The voices told me that she was dead. Um, at this point, uh, Daniel calls the psychologist to try to you know, get her to come out. But then he is given the confirmation over the phone that, yes, she did pass away the night before in a car accident. Um, he hangs up the phone, mom and dad end up having a conversation about, you know, how, how did Eric know this? How, who could have possibly told him? Dad basically bl blows it off as, oh, somebody at school must have told him, but you know, uh, Eric was hiding in a closet all day. So who exactly would have told him? So yeah, there's that. Um, we see Eric continuing to draw pictures throughout the film and then putting them up on his wall. But we don't get to see what the pictures are, and which is kind of an odd thing because, you know, the walls are basically empty when they first move in. And then just as these voices tell him to draw pictures, he keeps drawing them and putting them up on the wall. But no one ever makes issue of it. Like, nobody ever asks him, you know, what are these violent images that you're drawing and putting up on the wall? So eh, maybe a little bit of bad parenting there. But like I said... Dad is preoccupied with uh, fixing up the house, and Mom is preoccupied with her career. I'm not 100% sure what she does. I'm not sure if they mentioned it to us, but, you know, she obviously does something outside of the house. So that evening, uh, once again, this time it's Sarah waking up in the middle of the night and hearing the pool gate swinging open. Uh, she wakes up Dan and tells him to go outside uh, to check it out. As he's leaving the house... Uh, to go check on the pool gate, he notices that the front door is wide open, completely open, and instantly he starts to think, oh, you know, as anybody would, there's somebody in my house, so of course he grabs his shotgun and starts kind of looking around the perimeter of the house, but then he sees um, one of Eric's pajama uh, tops, I think, uh, like out in the front yard. He He grabs it, and then he looks over to the pool and realizes there's something in the pool that shouldn't be there. Uh, he walks over to the pool and, yes, unfortunately, Eric is in the pool face down floating. And this is the shocking thing I was talking about. Eric. I mean, 
we're literally 25 minutes into the movie at this point and who the person that i thought was going to be the catalyst of this entire film since he's the one hearing the voices has now been wiped out so this is yeah exactly yeah this is the kind of swerve that i really enjoy definitely yeah this this is definitely a turning point in the movie where it kind of to me, it made an effort to be a little bit different because, you know, you're assuming that, okay, this whole movie, it's going to, you know, they're going to be figuring out why the sun is hearing voices and the sun's going to be the key to everything. And then, nope, not exactly. Almost hereditary. like with It's very hereditary. I, I was actually going to say that. I wrote that in my notes. I'm like, wow, it's like Charlie getting taken out in the first act of hereditary. So, yeah. Um, again, you know. You can call it an homage. You can call it a ripoff. Whatever. For me, it worked. So um, at this point, um, you know, it's established that Eric has died. And then we get the first of a couple of montages. And this is the montage of the funeral, of Eric's funeral. And I just love the way that they did this. Because a lot of horror movies will definitely go for, like, the tear-jerking scene. But it's, but with this, they did a montage where they don't actually show anybody at the funeral. They show basic images of, like, maybe a, a, a shovel full of dirt being tossed onto a casket. Um, you know, they show people dropping off flowers at the grave, blah, blah, blah. And the score during this is to me perfect the the music that they chose for this it like i said it's not in your face it's just very somber very basic but it works perfectly so uh yeah make sure that you're paying attention to the score when the montages are playing uh assuming you decide to uh, uh watch the movie after hearing this entire spoiler section but yeah uh an incredibly well done scene um so anyway after that um uh, mom uh, sarah decides to leave the house to go spend some time at her parents. Um, Unfortunately, Daniel um, doesn't really want to leave the house because he wants to get the work done as quickly as possible so that they can flip the house, sell it, and just get the hell out of there. Um, After Sarah finally leaves to go to her parents, Dan starts watching home movies of Sarah and Eric and the first day that they got to that house. You know, so obviously Daniel's very sad. Um, He ends up calling his wife uh, and leaving a voicemail on her phone, uh, you know, just basically expressing his concern and just how much he loves her and blah, 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 all of that kind of stuff. Um, So the next morning, Sarah ends up calling Daniel and asking him, is everything all right? Um, what, What was with all the screaming in the background of the message that you sent me? Obviously, Dan doesn't really know what's going on, so he kind of blows it off and, you know, uh, says goodbye to Sarah and, you know, he'll talk to her soon. At that point, uh, Dad uh, re-listens to the message because he never actually listened back to it before he sent it. Uh, he listens to the message, and yes, there is there are voices in the background. Maybe not necessarily screaming, but there is definitely some commotion in the background. Um, apparently dad has some kind of audio knowledge because he then takes that file and he loads it up onto his laptop so that he can start playing with it, start trying to isolate some of the audio that's in there. And what he ends up finding is a very distinct, um, yell of Eric basically saying, dad, help, which obviously freaks out Daniel instantly. And, you know, he, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, The very next scene, what we see is Dan going to a book signing. And the book signing that he's going to is of the EVP expert that he was watching on that television show uh, a couple of nights earlier. Uh, 
our EVP expert's name is Edmond uh, Domingo, spelled G-E-R-M-A-N. So it looks like German, but it's Spanish, so it's pronounced Edmond. Never, ever call a Spaniard German. You'll have a bad day. Uh, so it, so Edmond Domingo is uh, about to sign Dan's book, and Dan then suddenly tells him, um, do you really believe, or asks him, do you really believe in all these things that you're talking about? Um, of course, uh, Edmond convinces him, yes, I've spent my whole life doing this. Of course I believe in it all. Dan lets him know that he has a, a recording that he wants the guy to listen to. Instantly, Edmond has that look of, oh boy, here comes another one who wants, to, wants me to listen to some sound file. Uh, but then Dan is able to convince him that it's real by basically repeating the words that he said on the, on the television show a couple of nights earlier. And what he said is, when you watch the wavelength of a file with an EVP in it, the wavelength does not change. So even though you hear voices in the background, the wavelength will look the exact same on the monitor that he's looking at. He tells him that uh, that's exactly what happened with this uh, sound file, that there's no change to the wavelength. Uh, Edmond basically relents and listens, or, you know, we assume that he listened to the file because then in the very next scene, what we see is Edmond and his daughter Ruth driving towards the house, uh, going to Daniel and Sarah's house. They have a little bit of a discussion. It's very obvious that Ruth is not a believer, but she does this to, you know, to help out her dad. Uh, dad is obviously a little bit older, so she's obviously doing it to help him out and to spend some quality time with him, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, so let's see. Um, so when they get to the house, when uh, Domingo and his daughter uh, get to the house, um, they start showing us, um, once again, these beautiful aerial shots of the house. And this is what I was talking about, this specific scene when uh, Domingo and his daughter arrive at the house. Uh, once again, we're looking at, uh, you know, a drone shot, you know, very high up. But like I said, they frame it in a way that doesn't make the house look welcoming or inviting in any way. It literally gives it a sense of menace that the house itself doesn't really earn, you know, by just standing there. So, um, again, beautiful cinematography. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. Um, once introductions are made, Herman and Dad go to the pool, and they start talking about the events of that night, the night that Eric drowned. Dan is convinced that this was not an accidental drown uh, drowning. He think He's very... Uh, convinced that someone killed his son. And the reason is the points that I talked about earlier. Daniel definitely knows how to swim and he would never go to the pool by its, by himself, especially at night, because he was scared of that pool enough that he didn't want to go near it during the daytime. So, like I said, um, he convinces Domingo of this. Um, uh, basically, uh, Domingo starts his investigation of the house uh, while wearing a pair of headphones and a parabolic mic. Anybody who doesn't know what a parabolic microphone is, it's basically one of those big microphones with a clear cone around it so that they can really hear all of the uh, audio activity in the room. Uh, you'll probably see it on the sidelines of NFL games, uh, but the ones that they use in the NFL are gigantic, whereas this one is like a handheld parabolic. So there you go. That's your audio lesson for the day. Um, at this point, Ruth is in another room monitoring all the cameras that they've set up in the house. And what ends up happening is Ruth ends up seeing the heat signature of someone 
in Eric's room. Uh, she basically tells her dad, hey, can you tell Daniel to get out of the house because he's interfering with the investigation? Uh, and Amon basically tells her, well, no, he's definitely not in the house. I'm looking at him out the window. He is outside. Then Ruth turns off uh, the heat vision, uh, the thermal vision, I guess, uh, and just makes it look like a, you know, a normal camera shot, and the figure disappears. It's not there. But then she turns the heat uh, camera back on, and there's the heat signature again, in the shape of a female just sitting on uh, Eric's bed. She lets her dad know about this, and of course he proceeds to go into Eric's room. Of course, he doesn't see anything with his um, with his naked eyes, but he does hear something. As he's panning the parabolic mic around the room, he is definitely catching a few instances of voices just kind of speaking gibberish, whispering into the microphone. But then at one point, uh, Ruth and Dad lose communication with each other, and when communication is reestablished, uh, Ruth is adamant, Dad, get out of the room get out of there right now. And dad is like, why, what do you see? And Ruth basically says, whatever it is, is standing right in front of you. And then we go, we go back to the heat vision view and there is uh, a female figure standing, I mean, literally inches in front of Edmond. Uh, obviously he doesn't see it. So he starts to walk forward and, you know, with the parabolic mic in front of him. And this is, you know, where we get the obvious, you know, uh, audio jump scare of, you know, of loud feedback in the headphones. But like I said, again, like I mentioned earlier, they delayed the jump enough that it worked for me. So, and, and like I said, and I'm sure most people remember this. I, I definitely always have a bigger issue with fake out jump scares. I don't think there was one fake. I, well, uh, in Eric's room when he was hiding under the blanket and his father showed up. That's literally the only fake jump scare in the entire movie, and I have to give them kudos for that because I don't have as big a problem with jump scares as, as some people, but like I, I said... I don't either. Yeah, don't these, these were just so effective. I mean, you know, it, it was like watching The Conjuring for the first time for me, where, you know, they were still basic jump scares, but they were effective. They worked for me in every way. So, bleh, there we are again. So Did you, did you find Ruth I, I kept referring to Ruth as Spanish Ivanka Trump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she definitely had a way better personality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, see, I see your point, though. She does kind of look like, you know, an attractive Trump daughter. But hopefully she just doesn't act like one. So. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's see. Audio jump scare. Okay. So after that scene, uh, all three of the people in the house, Daniel, Edmond, and his daughter, uh, go back to watch the footage as it was recorded. And there it is. I mean, they're watching the footage, and there is the figure, both sitting on the bed and then later in the footage, standing right in front of Edmond. So um, the daughter is still, Ruth is still very, like, skeptical. She's like, well, there's got to be an explanation for this. You know, this just doesn't make any sense. Obviously, Dad and Edmond are both a little bit more believing of it since they're, I mean, their eyes are looking right at the footage. So how do you not believe it? But whatever. Um, so that night, Edmond wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees someone walking around the house. Uh, he ends up getting up and hearing a voice, someone calling out to him uh, from the kitchen of the house. He then goes ahead and enters the kitchen. And what does he see? He sees the ghost of his dead wife. Um, 
obviously we haven't met the woman at this point, so you're not 100% sure it's his wife, but once they have a couple of interactions, a couple of lines together, it's very obvious it's his wife because she talks about how much she misses him, how much she misses their daughter, and, uh, you know, talking about, you know, don't you want to be with me? You know, don't you want to be together forever, blah, blah, blah. As she's talking about this, talking about, you know, um, being together again, she then pulls out a kitchen knife and she, the, the ghost, is seen starting to slice uh, or starting to slit uh, Edmond's arm. Like, and, and the correct way, too, not straight across, but the diagonal way up the arm. So, yeah, that, that ghost definitely knew what they were doing. Um, and then at that moment, Ruth walks into the kitchen and what she sees is her father slitting his own wrist. So, obviously, dad is... Uh, being possessed, really everybody in this movie is being possessed in one way or another. Um, she snaps him out of it and, you know, uh, covers the wound. Luckily, the wound wasn't deep enough to actually do any permanent damage. Um, you know, she had gotten there just as he started slicing, so lucky for him. Um, and then at this point, we go to where Sarah is staying at her parents' house. And Sarah actually receives a phone call. At first, she can't recognize the voice. She doesn't know who it is. But then after a couple of uh, seconds, she realizes it's the voice of Eric. Yes, her son is calling her, or at least we think her son is calling her on her cell phone. He lets her know that there's uh, somebody in the house who's trying to hurt him. And, you know, he, he basically tells her specifically, Daddy brought someone to the house who wants to hurt me. Obviously, mom is disoriented. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. She just buried her son a few days earlier. But at the end of the conversation, at the end of the phone call, Sarah says, where are you? And Eric tells her, I'm hiding under my bed. I don't want them to find me. She instantly hangs up the phone and jumps into her car to go back home. At this point, we see Ruth go outside. It's the next morning. And Ruth goes outside to smoke a cigarette. And what does she find? She finds a tree full of dead hanging cats. Yes, somebody or something hung like a dozen cats by the neck, literally hung them uh, on various branches of the tree. Um, and if you're a cat lover like me, this was not a pleasant scene to watch. Um, luckily, nope. not very nice to see. Yeah, it reminded me of Sleepwalkers if you've seen that movie. Oh God, yes. I mean, but Sleepwalkers had a certain element of humor to it, even though they were killing cats. I don't know. I I never took Sleepwalkers all that seriously. But well, they, it was just the, it was just the one scene in Sleepwalkers where it was similar with a bunch of hanging like yeah. Oh, some okay. of the cats were like disemboweled like half. I was just like oh, and I was I was a lot younger too when that movie came out, so I was like oh no. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, a, a very you know effective scene for those of us who love pets. Um. At that moment, uh, or, or right after that, Daniel takes down all the cats. He gets all the cats out of the tree, and he starts to bury them right there in the yard. He just wants to bury them and just get rid of them, get them out of sight as quick as possible. Unfortunately, Sarah arrives at that exact moment, um, basically uh, asking Daniel, who is this man? Because Daniel's outside with Edmond as they're burying the cats. Um, so she knows that's the guy that Eric was talking about that supposedly wants to hurt him, but she doesn't really make a big, like, she doesn't confront the guy right away. She just kind of, you know, shows her disapproval. And, but then she notices the cats in the, in the hole, uh, that he's in the process of burying. 
Um, I'm not sure what she thought of that because her facial expression is really odd. She's all, it looks like she's almost mad, almost like she thinks Daniel did it. Like Daniel actually killed all these cats for some odd reason or potentially maybe Edmond or whatever. But yeah, um, mom acted a little odd here. So at this point, um, she ends up going upstairs uh, to Eric's room. And what ends up happening is, um, uh, where am I here? Uh, Sarah looks, uh, yeah, okay. So, um, oh, wait, I skipped a scene. I'm very sorry. Uh, before this, actually, Ruth ends up going to town to collect some supplies from the pharmacy um, for her father, obviously, who's injured, who injured himself the night before. While she's in town, she actually runs into a local, a woman, who opens up her front door and tells Sarah to come in. Obviously, Sarah's kind of standoffish and doesn't want to just walk into a stranger's house. But then the old woman says to her, you're staying at the house up on the hill, aren't you? The house with the voices. And then Sarah instantly is like, oh, shit, this woman knows something. So she goes in. Um, in the scene where they're speaking to each other, all we really see is that the woman tells her that it's the house of voices and that anyone who goes into that house hears those voices. So it's not necessarily like mass hysteria or, you know, people are crazy. Um, there's legitimately something in that house speaking to people. So um, then we go back to the to the house and we see Sarah go into Eric's room. Uh, she walks into Eric's room. Uh, there's nothing there. She looks under the bed. There's nothing under the bed. Uh, she looks around for another second and starts to walk out of the house, uh, walk out of the room. As she's walking out of the room, the robot toy turns on. We hear the loud um, sound effects coming from the robot toy. And then she turns around and there's Eric on the floor, sitting Indian style, playing with his toy with his back to his mother. So we don't actually see his face. Um, Sarah starts to try to talk to him, you know, trying to get his attention. He does not reply. She starts to approach him and uh, she reaches out to touch him. And just before she actually touches him, uh, Eric lunges under the bed. He literally just freaks out and runs right under the bed. And so obviously Sarah thinks he's hiding under there. Sarah then goes and looks under the bed, but Eric is not there. He is gone. But what she does see is the same pair of feet and lower legs that Eric saw a couple of nights earlier. She sees it um, on the opposite side of the bed. So like I said, she's looking under the bed and then she sees that there's someone standing on the other side of the bed. She slowly gets up to see who it is and there's nobody there. She looks around the room, nobody there. Then she decides to look under the bed again. Again, she sees the feet and lower legs of some entity. And then we see the legs climb up on the bed. So literally they jump up on the bed and Sarah again starts to kind of back off and look up uh, from the position that she was in. And again, she sees nothing, nothing there, doesn't know what's going on. Uh, again, for some reason, she decides to look under the bed again. Uh, this time she doesn't see anything under the bed or across uh, the bed. But what happens is we see a little person wearing Eric's uh, pajamas. So you could basically say it's the image of Eric actually jump off the bed and lands on the floor right next to Sarah. Uh, he runs away and it freaks out Sarah enough that she does that backtracking thing where she just backs up until she hits uh, the wall. 
but unfortunately she doesn't hit a wall. Her hand lands on a foot, and of course it is the the nasty, dilapidated feet that we've been seeing throughout the movie. Uh, She looks up, and then we get, uh, once again, a very obvious jump scare, where as she looks up, a hand actually reaches from across from her, where she's not looking, grabs her by the throat, and then the scene ends. Uh, Let's see. At this point, Daniel and Herman are talking uh, about the house and talking about some of the images that Herman found online, and uh, he finds an image of the tree with all the cats hanging off it. Literally, it looks like a carbon copy of what we saw in Daniel's front yard. He then, Daniel then asks him, well, what does this represent? And uh, Herman lets him know that in the Middle Ages, this was used as a threat, basically warning people that they're invading someone else's territory. Daniel then asks, well, whose territory? And at that moment, Ruth walks in and just says a witch. Yes, my friends, we are dealing with a witch haunting here, which I'm generally on board for, so I definitely wasn't uh, upset with that reveal. At that point, um, uh, Ruth lets them know what she found out about the house, and what she found out from the local in the town is that the house used to be used as a courthouse um, approximately 300 years ago, and what happened in Spain 300 Hundred years earlier, the Spanish Inquisition, my friends. Yes. Yes. So nobody I'll... suspects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> you were waiting for that one. <laughs> of course, well, I was. Like, that's why I cut it. <laughs> um, so anyway, Ruth explains to Daniel that dozens of innocent women were tried, tortured, and executed on the property, uh, more than likely within the house somewhere. And then literally mid-sentence, we get a jump that fucking launched me out of the couch. As they're talking mid-sentence, Sarah's body flies through the front window of the house, just out of nowhere, completely unexpected. Uh, When Daniel realizes that it's Sarah, he instantly runs towards the window and realizes that Sarah has committed suicide. Uh, She has a rope around her neck and she is hanging there. Uh, She jumped from Eric's bedroom window, which is directly above where they were, which is why her body crashes through that front um, uh, window. And yeah, at this point, I am just feeling so torn up for Daniel. In In the course of a week, he's lost his only son and now he's lost the love of his life. So yeah, oh, just thinking about that, just you know, uh, brought some uh, some feelings, you know. So yeah, um, just very unfortunate. Um, like I said, it looks like she committed suicide. Um, and then we get another montage, and this is basically uh, the authorities taking away Sarah's body montage, if you will, where we see various police officers asking questions. We see Daniel uh, sitting at the front steps, just completely crushed. Um, We see Ruth answering uh, another set of questions from some police officers. Um, Obviously, we don't really hear what they're saying. um, But once again, the score in this scene is absolutely stellar. Once again, I'm not sure if it's the exact same piece of music from the funeral montage, but either way, I just loved it. it. It fits so well. Um, so at that point, uh, the, all the police officers and the ambulance with Sarah's body in it, they all leave. 
Ruth pulls her dad aside and basically says, we need to leave this house. We need to leave right now. But uh, Herman basically explains to Ruth that, no, we can't leave. I've spent my entire fucking life investigating this stuff. And now we have proof of something legitimately happening and you want me to leave. I can't leave. He's very adamant about it. Um, and, uh, Ruth basically just relents. She goes into the house to start packing up her stuff. But like I said, her dad is adamant that he doesn't want to leave. At this point, we see Dan up in Eric's room crying. And when he looks up, on the other side of the, the aforementioned plastic sheet, we now see Her uh, Sarah holding Eric in her arms. And they're both just standing there, um, just staring at Daniel. Daniel obviously approaches uh, the plastic sheet. Uh, when he moves the sheet out of the way, there's nothing there. Sarah and Eric are gone. And then, you know, again, we get what? probably the 17th expected jump scare at this point as dad starts to walk away from the plastic sheet something attacks him just jumps right on him and pushes him on the bed um let's see at this point we go back downstairs and we see ruth actually watching the footage of sarah's um suicide um obviously this is a ghost investigation so they have cameras in pretty much every room in the house and there is one particular camera that caught just a perfect shot of Sarah basically sitting in Eric's room, not doing anything, not talking to anybody, just sitting there. And then out of nowhere, you know, she walks over to the window. Uh, she grabs a rope that the house painters were using earlier in the movie, uh, ties it to her neck and jumps out, uh, jumps out of the window. Um as they're continuing to watch the footage, they see something walk by the camera. Right after Sarah jumps, something walks by the camera. Uh, they end up um, freeze-framing it, uh, and then they have to use, again, they have to use the heat signature camera to be able to see it. But there it is, our female antagonist once again, our witch now. We can officially call her a witch. Uh, our witch is basically... Uh, you know, just standing right there. Like I said, they freeze frame on her walking by the camera, and there she is. At that exact moment, they hear a gunshot, and they run up to Eric's room to find Daniel uh, just totally freaking out. Like I said, he was just attacked by the witch. He's got his shotgun. He obviously shot at something. And when Herman and Ruth walk into the room, you know, Daniel points the shotgun at them because he's completely freaking out. Uh, they're telling him there's nothing there. He's adamant that, yes, there is someone here. I keep seeing her. She's here. Uh, they eventually are able to get the gun away from Dan. And that's when Edmon uh, brings up the idea that he had earlier that Ruth cut him off on. Basically, Edmon thinks that there are still bodies somewhere in the house, that not all the, the, you know, the innocent women and maybe even one or two guilty ones, as Edmon says, um, you know, they should have been burned, but that potentially there might be body parts somewhere in the house. Um, they ask Dan, do you have any idea where there might be bodies in this house? And Dan says, uh, yeah, I have a pretty good idea. And they go right to the hole where all the flies were coming out uh, from like the second scene of the movie. Uh, Daniel breaks down the wall, uh, breaks down the brick uh, wall behind it. And what do they find but a set of stairs going down into a secret basement in the house that Daniel 
uh, and his wife had no idea about. So uh, they go down those stairs and basically what they find is just like a catacombs of like old torture devices. There's like the stocks. Uh, there's a rack in there. There's a guillotine, blah, blah, blah. So torture and killing devices, um, you know, throughout the basement. Um, then they find more stairs continuing going down in the, into the house. Um, oh, they haven't found any bodies, by the way, just torture devices. No bones, no bodies. Uh, they continue to go downstairs to even a lower level of the house. And there Edmond finds a cage with the decomposed body of a woman inside of it. Uh, they look at the body and you can tell that the mouth has been completely smashed open. Like the, most of the teeth are missing and like the, the mouth is like unusually wide open. Like no human should be able to open their mouth that far. Um, Erman explains uh, to uh, Dan basically asks what happened to her mouth Edmond explains that during the Spanish Inquisition, if anybody was found guilty of either lying or speaking uh, speaking blasphemy, that they would go through a torture that would basically make it so that they could never use their mouth again. And then we get a, uh, we get yet another montage, this time showing an old woman being tortured and killed in the basement. And that's when Edmond basically says, oh, we have to burn that body. Uh, that's why her spirit is still trapped in this house. We have to burn it. Again, nothing original, nothing we haven't seen before. Now, at this point, I want to uh, walk away from the walkthrough because I, 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 during the montage where the old woman's being tortured, they show the tool that they use to smash her mouth open. And I did a little bit of research because I knew the item had a name. And what I found was that this device is called the Pear of Anguish. Pear, P-E-A-R. It's called that because when it's closed, it looks like a pear. It literally looks like a metal pear. And then on top of it, there is a button that makes uh, the bulbous part of the pear open into four quadrants, like just wide open. Um, what I found was that in the Spanish Inquisition, um, Edmond was actually correct. Uh, when people, you know, spoke blasphemy, were accused of manipulation or lying, they would have that device put into their mouth and then they would hit the button and it would open inside their mouth, basically crushing their skull. Um, what I found in my research is that the people that had the pair of anguish used in their mouth were the lucky ones because what I found is that if people were accused of a more sexual crime, uh, the pair would actually be inserted into either the anus or for females, of course, into the vagina. And what I read is that when the pair of anguish goes off in one of those spots, it does not instantly kill the person. They basically are then treated to about two or three days of the most excruciating pain you could possibly uh, imagine. I mean, their pelvis is completely shattered. Their lower spine is probably completely severed. I mean, I, I was trying to find pictures, obviously drawings. I was trying to find some drawings of the pair of anguish in use, but I could not. So uh, there's a there's your little history lesson from Mr. Venom for you. The pair of anguish. Look it up if you're into gnarly middle age uh, torture devices like I am. It's pretty awesome. So uh, at this point, um, 
Herman is walking through the basement by himself because Dan runs up to the garage to grab some gasoline so that they can um, kill or burn the body of the witch. At this point, uh, Herman is attacked by the witch. Uh, we get a nice little set piece, very lights out where, you know, uh, his flashlight keeps coming, keeps going out and coming back in, and it's like alternating, showing the witch there, and then she's not there, and then she's there, blah, blah, blah. Like I said, very lights out. Um, at that point, the witch attacks Edmond, um, basically just more of a jump scare attack, um, not really like, you know, she doesn't like grab him or anything, but at the exact moment that that jump scare occurs, we see Ruth upstairs by herself, and what does she see? She sees the ghost of her mother, or at least that's what she thinks. Basically the same woman that we saw uh, slit Edmond's wrists earlier in the film. Um, but Ruth, and I will give her credit for this, Ruth is smart enough to realize that's not her mother. She knows that her mother is dead, and she refuses to approach the entity, even though it's telling her, you know, don't you want to hug? Don't you want to hug your mother? At that point, mom approaches Ruth uh, very slowly, and then she hits like a patch of um, like shadow where she's completely silhouetted. And then when she comes out of the shadow, of course, she is the witch that we've been seeing throughout the film. And we get a double jump scare here where the witch first shows up in front of Ruth, and then she turns around to run away, and the witch is there again to give her a another jolt. So... At this point, Dan is in the garage getting, uh, still getting, uh, looking for another can of gasoline um, so that they could completely obliterate the witch's body. At this point, um, he's in the garage by himself. The garage door slightly opens by itself, and Eric's red ball rolls into the garage. Uh, you know, Dad is obviously a little freaked out. He goes to approach the red ball very slowly, but then suddenly the garage lights go off. And they come back on, and instead of the red ball, there's the witch standing right in front of them in all her glory. They're not hiding her anymore at this point. Um, let's see. The witch basically does another one of her little silly jump scares uh, to Dan. But this time, when he turns around, instead of the witch being there again for a double jump, once again, it's Sarah and Eric. Sarah's standing there holding Eric in her arms. Um, basically he walks up to them and talks about how much he misses them. And then Eric makes a comment like, well, don't you want to stay with us forever? Don't you want to be with us forever? And Dan of course starts crying and he walks up to both his wife and his daughter's image. He hugs them. And then very reminiscent of the shining, of course, while he's in mid hug, uh, uh, Eric and Sarah again turn into the witch. Uh, but then that scene ends. Uh, we, we don't get any, like he doesn't realize he's hugging the witch, blah, blah, blah. The scene just ends. Um, let's see. At this point, Edmond is pouring gas on the body in the cage. And then he starts to hear some humming, like a female voice basically humming. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be the witch or his wife. But like I said, um, it distracts him for a little bit until Ruth appears in the basement and she has blood red eyes. And what does she do? She stabs her father right in the belly with a, uh, like a box cutter that she had been holding for part of the film. 
Uh, she's attacking her father. Her father is now lying on the ground, bleeding, basically begging with her, fight it, fight it, um, Ruth, blah, blah, blah. At this point, we go back to Dan in the garage, and we see Dan pouring another can of gasoline onto himself. And what's cool about this shot is you can actually see the witch standing behind him. Uh, you can see, like, the lower half of her, you know, like her legs and whatnot, standing behind him. And he's crying and pouring the gasoline on his face. I, I just love the composition of that shot. Um, at this point, we go back to Edmond and Ruth um, at the cage. Uh, Ruth is still with her blood red eyes, so Ruth is still possessed at this point. She's approaching her father slowly. Um, her father basically hits her in the face with the shotgun, and then he picks up the shotgun and takes aim. He points it right at Ruth. And basically right before he pulls the trigger, he just says, I'm sorry. But when he pulls the trigger, he's not pointing at Ruth. At the last second, he pointed the gun at the cage. He shot the cage with the body in it, and the body instantly ignites, uh, just lights up on fire, you know, lighting up the night sky. Um, at that exact moment, Ruth passes out. Uh, she just falls to the floor. And then we see, we go back to the garage where Daniel is, and we see him uh, flick on one of those barbecue uh, lighters, you know, one of those long red barbecue lighters. And he's literally about to light himself, but then his eyes go from blood red to normal and he drops the lighter and it appears for now that the witch has been defeated. Um, everything seems to be going back to normal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, and, and basically right before Ruth comes to right, you know, when she comes back uh, from being passed out, we see a fly come out of her ear uh, and fly away. And then she wakes up, uh, she sees that her father has been stabbed, but doesn't remember that she did it. So she's concerned for her father's health. Uh, she grabs them, and all three of them do escape uh, the basement area, and we're back up into the main part of the house. Um, at this point, um, Ruth starts questioning her father as to why he always, you know, is into these ghost investigations, and Edmond finally admits to Ruth that he started doing all of this because he wanted to try to speak to his wife to find out why she killed herself. So at that moment, we get the, the reveal that Edmond's wife, Ruth's mother, uh, killed herself for some reason. But we never actually get an explanation because Edmond basically says, well, I was looking for the same answers you were, and obviously we didn't really get them. So we're just going to have to move on from there. He also tells Ruth that a, a friend of his who's a priest called him on the phone earlier in the week to talk about potentially getting him to help her with a possessed girl. That's all they say at the time is a possessed girl. So instantly I'm like, oh, are they setting up a sequel? I am very okay with a sequel if we get one. Um, but at this point we see Dan in Eric's room crying, you know, basically lamenting everything that's happened. And he finally looks up on the wall and sees all the pictures that his son drew before he died. And every single picture corresponds with something um, nefarious happening, you know, either, um, you know, the car accident, um, you know, uh, Ruth stabbing her father, blah, blah, blah. Basically, the kid predicted everything that was going to happen. Um, 
And then, of course, the question lies, did he actually predict it or did he make it happen with his drawings? We never really get a distinct answer there. Um, so it's up to your interpretation, you know, uh, debate as you wish. Um, as, as Daniel is looking at all the pictures, that um, all the drawings that Eric made, suddenly memories start flooding to him, uh, memories that he didn't remember, things that he didn't remember. And what we get is we get the reveal, uh, the, the heartbreaking reveal that it was actually Daniel who killed his son. Uh, basically, we see we go mm -hmm. back to the night of the accident and we see a fly go into Daniel's ear. At that point, he gets up very robotic, you know, just gets up emotionless, literally grabs his son takes him over to the pool. Eric is obviously pleading for his life, blah, blah, blah. And then we see Daniel holding Eric under uh, the water until the bubbles stop. Um, this is the scene that I was talking about earlier that's very reminiscent of Twin Peaks. Anybody who watched the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, you remember there was a character in the movie, uh, in the show called Leland Palmer. He was the father of Laura Palmer, the girl, you know, the, the, the murder victim that centers around the entire series. Basically what happens in the final scene with Leland in it is kind of the same thing that happens to Daniel here. All the memories start flooding back to him of all the things that he did while he was possessed. And spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Twin Peaks, yes, it turns out that Leland hit, um, killed his own daughter while being possessed by an entity known as Bob that lives in the forest of Twin Peaks. So um, I, I just felt like it was very reminiscent because um, Leland basically does the exact same thing that Daniel does. Um, he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't kill himself in the exact same way, but he does kill himself while he's in prison. Um, and I kind of skipped ahead a little bit, too, because, um, at, like I said, as Daniel is remembering all the memories, he's crying, he's, you know, distraught. He basically ends up taking the last drawing that Eric, the last two drawings that Eric made. One of them is the drawing of Daniel uh, drowning Eric. And he basically drops the drawing in the pool, grabs his shotgun, puts it under his chin and takes his own life. Um, unfortunately. So yeah, unfortunately the entire family did not survive this experience, but uh, for whatever it's worth, Ruth and Edmond are able to, you know, get away without too much um, issue. Uh, and then the movie kind of ends the same way that it started. We get an aerial shot of the pool, but this time um, uh, Daniel is floating in the pool with a large puddle of blood around him and he's face down just like Eric was when he found him in the pool. So, yeah, there's our there's our big reveal of who actually killed Eric. And again, I love this final shot. Um, like I said, once again, it's one of those drone aerial shots. And like I said, it, it, Ruth is at the side of the pool crying. Daniel is bleeding in the pool. It's just such a heavy image to end the whole thing on. And then we go to credits. But there's more. Uh, there, as we mentioned, stick earlier, around. Exactly. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there is a post credit scene. And what we see in the post credit scene is we see two priests standing over a girl who's strapped to a bed. The girl's crying, you know, not acting unusual in any way. But then the two priests start reading scripture. 
I assume they're reading the rites of exorcism. And suddenly the girl violently, um, you know, sits up and starts screaming. And, you know, she's tied to the bed, but she's trying to attack, um, you know, the priest, blah, blah, blah. And then she just passes out. Out of nowhere, she just passes out. And then the camera uh, pans out to show Ruth actually watching this exact footage on her laptop. And where are they? They're still in the hospital. We see Edmond. Uh, in a hospital bed. Um, so this is obviously very soon after the events of the film. And at that point, uh, Ruth closes her laptop and then the film is actually over. And that is Don't Listen, also known as, also known as Voces 2020. Um, and I, I, I wanted to say that I really, really like that post credit scene. And the only reason I like it it, not because it's setting up a sequel, not at all. Um, if you if you really paid attention throughout the film, you remember that Ruth is a skeptic. She doesn't believe in anything. Yet, it's her watching the footage on the laptop literally the next day after, you know, Daniel uh, mm -hmm. killed himself in the hospital, which just kind of goes to show you that Ruth is now a believer. Obviously, it's kind of been forced on her because of the events of the film. But it's very obvious now that Ruth is just as excited as her father to go to their next, you know, little adventure and, you know, try to either dispel or prove, you know, the paranormal. So it's, it's a subtle little scene, but I just, I, I think it's the perfect epitaph and it makes me feel good to know that Ruth is more on board with what her father believes. Um, obviously, especially after witnessing everything that she witnessed. So yeah, folks, that's Don't Listen, and I love every second of this movie. I don't think I really need to say any more at this point. I've spent the last almost two hours, um, like I said, just absolutely stroking this movie's ego. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to Mike and Don and let them close out their final thoughts. I, I really don't have much. I mean, yeah, like, you know, it sounds a lot better reading out the events if you're not familiar with, you know, mm -hmm. the tropes or the genre in general. But it, it, I stand by what I said. It's, you know, still an incredibly enjoyable watch. I just, I, I, you know, it just reminded me of every other haunted house ghost movie I've seen. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, I still rated it incredibly high. You know, like I said before, if I was rating this, I would probably go around a seven. So it's not like it's completely you know devoid of any merit but you know like you said if you were complaining it to be nearly flawless i i i found it incredibly predictable and not necessarily maybe not predictable but just you know incredibly formulaic i guess so no no i'll agree with predictable like i said most of the jump scares you can see them coming they may not hit at the exact moment that you think they're going to hit, but they're there. You can see them two miles away in some cases. So I, yeah, I definitely won't argue that um, the movie. Um, I mean, yeah, the movie is kind of formulaic, but like I said, I yeah. ultimately it's not a problem to me because I enjoyed my experience. You know, like I said, I wasn't frustrated. I wasn't bored. Um, I ultimately, like I, as I've already said, I loved every minute of this film. So even though at the end, yes, I can admit I, it's like a hundred other haunted house stories that I've seen before. It still was just effective. And like I said, I just can't nitpick anything about it. As hard as I tried to find something negative to say about this movie, I can't find it. So, 
Um, I totally understand Don's views. I will not argue them. You know, um, I respect everyone's opinion. And, uh, you know, ultimately the movie didn't work for him and that's fine. But hopefully uh, more people will find this movie as enjoyable as me and Mike did. Um, just because, I, you know, I want to see I want to see more from this director. Uh, his name is Angel Gomez Hernandez. Um, he also wrote the film. So uh, look out for um, his or hers work. I did know a girl named Angel. So oh, it is a guy. Okay. <laughs> uh, a fairly young guy, too. So, you know, look out. He should, I, I'm hoping he has a bright future because I absolutely love this movie and I will spend the next few years praising its name. So, uh, Mike, please shut me up, would you? <laughs> yeah, um, I had a lot of fun with this one. Was impressed with it. Uh, I, I don't have much more to say. Yeah, we, it was really good. It held up on the second watch. Um, and I just thought it was really well done. Sometimes, to me, the execution uh, and the characters and the story supersede the fact that, you know, it kind of hasn't been done before feeling, but it it just didn't really bother me, man. Sometimes, if it's a genre I like, I'll take the same as long as it's done well, and to me, this one was done really well. I mean, yeah, I, I famously love just about every found footage movie ever made, no matter how bad they are. I tend to find good qualities about them. So, yeah, there's always going to be subgenres that, you know, we're a little bit more biased on. You know, I will fully admit zombies, werewolves, paranormal are some of the my favorite things out there. So, it, you know, especially as a Spaniard, when I see a Spanish film like this just come out of nowhere where I just wasn't expecting something like this, it, it, it's a special treat for me. So hopefully, you know, uh, a lot of you people that are listening to my voice right now agree with us. If you don't, hey, hit me up. If you had the same kind of problems that Don had or if you had different problems that you didn't hear discussed uh, on this show, definitely hit us up on the Facebook page. Let us know. Um, I'm always down to talk to the listeners. So hit us up. And, uh, yeah, like I said, you got to shut me up, Mike, because I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> Unmute yourself there, bud. <laughs> Edit. See, I didn't, I didn't want him to shut up. Um, actually, <laughs> I want him to keep talking, but I want him to tell us where we can hear him besides fresh cuts. <laughs> okay. Uh, so... Um, a couple of my shows that were on hiatus are back, so this will be a little bit longer than usual, but I'll be as quick as possible. Uh, on the main show, No More Room in Hell, we just recorded a new episode last night that should be out maybe later in the week. Uh, we looked at a couple of subterranean horror films, uh, specifically 1972's Raw Meat, also known as Deathline. And we also looked at 2004's Creep out of the U.K., uh, so check those out. We also had a very, uh, you know, long intro segment with our guest, Gary Hill. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Like I said, that should be available on the Dark Discussions podcast network later this week. Probably, you know, just after this episode is available. Um, on It's Not Horror OK, I finally made my return after missing a couple of episodes in a row. And we did a commentary on the 1981 South African martial arts film, Kill 
uh, yeah, Kill and Kill Again, which is actually the sequel to 1980's Kill or Be Killed. So, uh, once again, uh, had a really fun time on that one. I know that movie is not easy to find, so it's probably going to be a little bit harder for people to be able to enjoy the commentary. But if you can find it, uh, we had a really good time with that one, so check it out. On In the Mic of Madness, which once again is back after a hiatus, uh, we just recorded a quick episode. We didn't actually review any films. Uh, we wanted to put something out there. Uh, so what we basically decided to do was to do our top 10 spank bank horror scenes. Uh, yes, those wonderful scenes that were about 30 seconds long that we rewound over and over again for uh, very sexy reasons when we were teenagers. So we did a top 10 list of those. So check that out. That's on the latest In the Mic of Madness, which is available on the Prescribed Films Podcast Network. And then uh, another return that we can announce uh, that affects both Don and Ellie and myself Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space is back. We will be recording an episode um, hopefully in the next week and should be available shortly after that on the Legion Podcast Network. Uh, we're going to be looking at my favorite of the Heisei Godzilla films, and that is Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. And we will continue our Ultraman retrospective with episode 23. So look out for that sometime later next week, probably closer to Christmas. Um, and like I said, that's on the Legion Podcast Network. And I had, I've had a couple of guest shot spots over the last couple of weeks, uh, 22 shots of moods and horror. And then tomorrow I will be doing a guest spot on Cut to the Chase on the second episode of their uh, Christmas special. We're going to be looking at Edward Scissorhands, one of my sentimental favorite uh, Christmas movies out there. So hopefully that'll be out uh, also on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network sometime late next week or early the following week the week of christmas so check that out that's it from me guys all right uh what do you got if anything don um the only thing i have is uh the release of the episode that i talked about last time um i guess it on cinema attack and we did a look at the first two releases of the hotel inferno series uh, those are on uh, Cinema Attack and the Dark Discussions Network. Um, I said that they were recorded last time. They've been released in the interim, so that's available now. Um, Venom mentioned Underwater Kaiju making its glorious return. So hopefully next episode uh, we will have um, announced that the episode is recorded and available soon, which I'm really looking forward to. But um, other than that, uh, yeah, just, you know, once again, here on Fresh Cuts, because like most other people, I've got nowhere to go and nothing else to do. So <laughs> you guys once a week is pretty much the main focus right now. So um, I'm still on Bay of Blood. Uh, um, I believe there may be an episode recording or two, but, uh, you know, with that, I can't say anything. So just check that, and maybe there'll be an episode or two. I I can't say, but um, as of now, yeah, just uh, the the Cinematech episode and fresh cuts. Oh, and then we still have to record the first episode of Underground Witches from Spain. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as me, uh, it's just 
pretty much this and no more room in hell which we did record a new episode of should be out probably within a day or two of this one uh it, it actually could be posted before this one just depending on um the order they get to dark discussions but uh other than that my slate has been pretty clean lately so uh venom are we looking at uh that one on Shutter. What is it? Anything for Jack? Anything for yes. Jackson? Yes. I was, Jackson. I was actually gonna. Okay. I was gonna mention that actually off air. Now that you bring this up, I've had three different people talk to me about what the ending of that meant. So I was gonna bring it up as a suggestion just to explain Ooh. it. I like those so, kind of movies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. I was actually gonna because I was actually gonna suggest that since I made a comment on, I think in uh, a box party when Watson announced he was doing it. Mm-hmm. I told him that I had already seen it and loved it, and then he said, explain the ending to me. And then <laughs> other people actually jumped on and said, yeah, send it to me as well. So um, I was actually going to suggest that off air, but since you're going to bring it up now. Um, yeah, I think I, I think it's a pretty solid choice for next week. It's getting a lot of positive reviews. I don't know anything about it. Uh, obviously, everyone knows I try to go into the movies as blind as possible, so I don't read, you know, synopsis or anything. But I've heard positive feedback, and if I hear even more than two or three podcasters, you know, give something, you know, praise, I I am instantly intrigued. So I, you know. It seems like the obvious choice. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some Christmas horror. I know December, uh, the Christmas horror anthology recently was released. Um, and obviously, there'll be a slew of other Christmas horror stories. But obviously, we all know how the quality of Christmas horror stories sometimes goes. So uh, we, we, we tend to be a lot uh, very, I don't know, skeptical, I guess is the word, especially after we reviewed all the creatures are stirring. So, yeah. Anybody who remembers that episode remembers how much I hated that. So <laughs> that might have turned me off on Christmas anthologies for a little bit. <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, with that, we're going to end this episode and get out of here. But it looks like we'll be back next week with a review of uh, Anything for Jackson. Shudder. Uh, I don't know if it's a Shudder original, but they it's probably Shudder exclusive is what they say. Um, so plenty of time for people to watch it ahead of time so venom don don let's say goodbye to the listeners adios amigos (laughs) peace out